Let us worship God. from the book of Daniel, the seventh chapter, beginning with the tenth verse. In preparation to hear these words, let us pray. Holy God, we give you thanks for these ancient words and for the lives of those who have carried them down throughout the ages. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds that we might hear a word from you this day. Amen. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. 
And he came to the Ancient One and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God.
Our second reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. Grace to you, and peace from God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before God's throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the monarchs of the earth, to Christ who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a sovereignty, priests serving God the creator, to Christ be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, the Christ is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. The Alpha to the Omega. Moving that into English. The A to Z of Christ's dominion does not spell Dominionism. Christianity was born into an apocalyptic time. We are still recovering and not recovering. Our readings today celebrate Christ's all-powerful and everlasting dominion with apocalyptic wonder. Christians throughout history keep wanting to apply Christ's dominion to ourselves and come up with Christian dominionism. It's a scary thing. Dominionism still has fluid definitions and is often denied and often proclaimed. Basically, it's the belief that Christians are mandated to take control of all major aspects of society to bring it under the control of the reign of Christ. It's an attempt by humans to do what only God can do. So it, it never ends up well. Do you remember the invisible man? He was only visible when he was covered. Apocalypse means the uncovering, revelation, taking off the veil. Taking off my mask is an apocalypse. Apocalyptic writing is highly symbolic literature to encourage people during times of severe discouragement. 
It's written for those under persecution, exile, and loss because of who they are. When these same encouraging pep talks are appropriated by the dominating power or by those who wish to be dominating powers, the meanings become twisted and dangerous. The usurpers of the message dress themselves as the persecuted to take power rather than to come to the aid of those for whom the apocalyptic writing is intended. Daniel was written to encourage Jewish people during persecution. Judea had been under foreign control for over 400 years. Today's chapter from Daniel received its final form during the persecution of the Seleucid king Antiochus IV, I don't know how to say it in English, Epiphanes, <laughs> Epiphanes, I think. Maybe he was showing himself around too, Epiphanes. It describes a program of state terror, murder, enslavement, and the outlawing of Jewish identity, scriptures, and worship. The four successive kingdoms that dominated Judea are symbolized by beasts and characterized by violence, destruction, exploitation, and oppression. By contrast, the eternal kingdom of God will be oriented towards justice. It has its origin at the very throne of God. But throughout much of Christian history, we have perpetrated violence, destruction, exploitation, and oppression with the twisted, stated intent of bringing about the eternal kingdom of justice. The book of Revelation was written to encourage members of the Jesus movement as Roman persecution grew and separation from their Jewish roots became more painful. Do you remember King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. They sponsored his adventure to China. Of course, he ended up finding himself on the shores of Hispaniola in the Caribbean. But this King Fernando of Aragon felt that he had a rightful claim to be king of Jerusalem. 13th century predictions from his kingdom foretold that the monarchs of Aragon were destined to conquer Jerusalem, following which a sequence of events would lead to a universal Christian empire that would lay the groundwork for the second coming of Christ. The thirst for domination was cloaked in the piety of hastening the second coming of Christ. This pious thirst and huge financial hopes were some of the main engines powering the conquest of the Americas. I'm reading a history of the conquistadores 
And there the author says, Bartolome de las Casas. Have you heard of Bartolome de las Casas? One of the few early Spaniards that he went through his own conversion experience. He was part of that same movement of conquest originally. But being on the, sh the land of the Americas and seeing the horrors, he became an outspoken critic of the conquest. He described the treatment of the indigenous people in the New World by Europeans in diabolical terms. It sounds something like Daniel or the Book of Revelations. Packs of tyrants and thieves who tortured and murdered their way across the entire continent leave a trail of destruction of apocalyptic proportions. Yet throughout his narrative, Las Casas rarely mentioned individual names. Neither, well, some names are mentioned in Revelation and Daniel, but it's mostly beasts. And the audience, the people that received the writing, knew exactly who those beasts were. Spaniards were depicted impersonally as ravening wolves, tigers, and savage lions who have not eaten meat for days, who slaughtered those gentle lambs grazing peacefully in green pastures, bringing about a chaos worthy of Lucifer himself. So Bartolome de las Casas became a voice crying in the wilderness, calling out the horrors being perpetrated in the name of bringing the good news to these newly discovered lands. He used apocalyptic hyperbole to get his point across. So that conquest was a continuation of the destructive and misguided crusades that were energized by apocalyptic fanaticism supercharged by predictions of the end of the world. That energy keeps manifesting in every generation of Christianity, always needing to move, to re-explain, or forget the foretold date for the end of the world. Apocalyptic writings are something like our political cartoons. They give a strong and biting message, but we need to get the meaning of the images. What images did Jesus give us? All four of our Gospels have Pilate questioning Jesus. Both Pilate and Jesus were likely bilingual, but they may not have had a common language. So we hear them speaking an uncommon language between the two of them. Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' answer, my kingdom does not belong to this world, are the key to the Gospels. The reign of God is the core of Jesus' message. Now here it's helpful to understand world. I recommend taking the meaning that Richard War gives it. He, he says it, a better word would be to call it the system. The system. Oftentimes Christians read the world and look around at God's creation and think, oh, this is something we need to dominate and destroy. But what we need to change is the system that ignores the world that God makes, that ignores God's creation. Jesus invites the proud 
and powerful to sit down. And the poor and powerless to stand up. Sometimes Christian preaching turns out upside down by praising the proud and powerful as the righteous and denigrating the poor and the powerless as irresponsible sinners. Meditate on Mary's revolutionary speech as she greets her cousin Elizabeth during the time of wonderment about her own pregnancy. She proclaims, he scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. I do find it problematic to apply royal images to Jesus. Those are images and metaphors from another age. I, we do experience many people who would be kings and queens. How can we speak of the reign, the kingdom of Christ, for it to have meaning for us today? Maybe it can help to know that Christ is not someone who would be king. He simply is. He's our maker, the one who loves us into life. King, I think, is a very limiting image for Jesus, for the Christ. But what he does with that metaphor is turn it on its head. He leads by serving rather than dominating, by having no property or borders to defend, and by going first among those most in need. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus is seldom identified as king, but when he is, the world has a fit, and Jesus needs to keep a low profile. When those three foreigners came from the east looking for the newborn king, Herod had a fit and ordered the murder of every young male infant. Nathaniel recognizes Jesus as the son of God and king of Israel, and Jesus tells him, well, you don't really know yet what you're talking about. You haven't seen anything yet. And then Jesus quotes Daniel and tells Nathaniel, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending, this is the translation we usually hear, upon the Son of Man. We'll talk more about that in a bit. When the people ate their full at the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, they wanted to force Jesus to be the, become their king because of the wonders they saw. Jesus escaped from their misguided grasp. Most mentions of Jesus as king have to do with his condemnation and crucifixion. Now, we tend to think of the term son of man as something exalted. It simply means human, a descendant of Adam. So we could use another translation, human, as we use this morning. I like son of Adam. Of course, Adam means human. At first, is a descriptive term in Genesis, Adam, the thing I made out of the mud, and then later in that story, it actually becomes a name. 
That's the title Jesus takes for himself. I am a son of Adam. Someone who was born helpless, lived to love, heal, and help, and was given capital punishment because of it. Jesus tries to get us to understand his dominion. It's like a mustard seed, a treasure hidden in a field, the finest pearl, a net with every type of fish, a master who hands his fortune over to the care of his servants, a farmer tormented by enemies who sow weeds among his wheat. The reign of God invites us to metanoia, the process of changing our way of perceiving, of recognizing God in creation. It is a dominion based on service, not domination, control, or wealth. In a sermon I found by Sister Mary McGlone, she proclaims, in the reign of God, people trust the insight of widowed mothers and beggars to explain how the financial system really works. In the reign of God, people look for migrants and refugees to understand the true character of nations. They watch those who serve the wounded and outcast to understand what religion really is. We celebrate this end of the liturgical year to be renewed, not frightened by strange apocalyptic images of the end of the world and the need to force our own dominion over the system it's an ending that leads immediately to a new beginning a renewed call to the metanoia that initiates us into the reign of God a dominion of service that invites the powerful to sit on the floor and shut up and invites the powerless to stand up with dignity and be fed. Fanatical apocalyptic focus on the end times may be a way of avoiding what the Lord is calling us to in the present. The main value of looking to an end, to looking at our own mortality, is to attend to where we are inhabit it, value it, and lovingly gaze within it. At the end of the liturgical year, we reflect on what is to come and walk through these apocalyptic writings about judgment and end times. But in practice, next week, we go back to the beginning of things. As we celebrate the reign of Christ, let us remember that the New Testament continues the Old Testament's critique of human monarchs and oppressive power. Christ's dominion is not triumphalist. It's the reign of one who suffers unto death out of love and service to the outcast. When the oppressors paint themselves as the outcast, watch out. Crusading cries are often a sheepskin to justify the desire to do violence and to dominate. As we recently heard, a one-time national security advisor proclaimed, if we are going to have one nation under God, which we must, we have to have one religion. One nation under God 
and one religion under God. And whose religion will it be? Who will enforce it? And an archbishop in Los Angeles has been denigrating social justice movements as pseudo-religions and rejecting Black Lives Matter as somehow counter-Christian. He sent this message to a gathering in Spain earlier this month. My message is this. I believe that the best way for the church to understand these new movements of social justice is to consider them as pseudo-religions and even as replacements and rivals to traditional Christian beliefs. Perhaps he sees them as rivals because he's out of touch and has not spent time with them? Is he able to dialogue with these movements and discover that maybe they are the ones taking up the work of the body of Christ? Is the Archbishop afraid to work together with these movements for common good goal? So reflecting on end times is helpful when we realize we don't know anything about the end of the world, but we know plenty about many endings. Life is a series of beginnings and endings, one leading to the other. Life is goodbye, and life is hello. The spiritual practice of meditating on our own deaths can serve to renew our perspective and enliven us for the next good step for today. Stop highest heaven.
As we continue now with the prayer chants, you are invited in the silence of your hearts to offer your prayers of intercession and supplication, those prayers for the world, for those you love, and for yourself to be given to God.
Let us pray. Holy God, you have fed us by word, by song, with bread, and with community. And for that, we give you our thanks and our praise. Amen. Children of Adam, go forth, enlivened for the next good step for today. And may the grace of God who created you in love, the peace of Christ who teaches it is possible to be love, and the power of the Spirit who calls you ever forward into new experiences of love, be and abide with you this day, this week, and evermore. Amen. Thank you.